This was interesting when the countdown timer officially ended and I looked out this morning before church and this, before the gathering started and I looked out, everybody was seated on this side. <laughs> so if you're over here, I know you were late. Um, <laughs> No, but, but I was like, I feel really lopsided, so I'm grateful that you're here. Thank you for being with us this morning, and uh, thank you to all of those who are with us on Zoom for, uh, uh, yeah, so, you know, what a pleasure it is for us to be together this morning. It seems like it was just a couple of weeks ago that we were talking about joy and contentment in the book of Philippians, and now we find ourselves in Psalm 120. Uh, you know, I'd be curious to hear how you felt when uh, Bob was reading it earlier, but I think it's safe to say that joy and peace or, or contentment uh, wouldn't be the first words that came to mind with that psalm, right? Uh, to me, this song reeks of distress, uh, difficulty, even that final phrase, you know, I'm all for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It just feels like despair to me. There's a hopelessness. The, the psalmist is expressing this deep challenge that they're experiencing. I want something better, right? I, I want peace, but I'm powerless to bring it about. This is, this is heavy stuff. Now, you, you might remember from last week, uh, we've just begun a new sermon series. And we're journeying through a number of psalms. They're from Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 135. We're going to do one a week for, I don't know, until after... Somewhere, sometime in May, I think, actually, because Easter happens and whatnot. Anyways, we're loosely following along with a, a book that was written by Eugene Peterson. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And, um, and, and this is his metaphor that he uses for discipleship. And this image of the long obedience serves as a reminder to us that following Jesus is a lifelong journey rather than a momentary event, right? So these Psalms, Psalm 120 to 135, uh, so this one included, these are special because they are a part of a series of songs which were believed to be used by God's people as they traveled from their homes all around the region towards Jerusalem. And, uh, and they, they would make these trips like three times a year for the important feasts. So these songs, they were like the curated playlist, right? This was the playlist for the journey. And because Jerusalem was the area of highest um, elevation, that's the word, highest elevation on the whole region, all of the psalms on the playlist get called the Psalms of Ascent, right? Because they were pilgrims, these were on this pilgrimage journey to Jerusalem, and they were traveling all the while upwards. But, you know, I hope, of course, that, that this idea of ascending is not simply a geographical or a physical one, but it's also a spiritual one. That the pilgrims would hopefully, these people are traveling to Jerusalem for these feasts and festivals, that they would hopefully also be on a journey metaphorically in an upward direction. That they would be drawing nearer and nearer to God as they prepared their hearts for the various rituals and special feasts and offering of sacrifices and all of the things that came with these times in Jerusalem. So all of this context begs a question for us, right? Why would people want to start this journey upward on such a sour note, <laughs> right? Like, why would you want to start it? If you're making a playlist for a long drive, you're going on a vacation, something special, why would you make the very first song into, into like a really sad song that's going to set the mood, right? That's probably not the way that we would plan it. Why, why would this one even make it onto the playlist for the journey in the first place? Well, this particular psalm Psalm 120, it is about the painful moment 
that immediately precedes change. This particular psalm, it captures a specific moment in the Christian journey, right? All of these songs are, are about different moments and movements and themes of the Christian journey. This captures a very particular moment. We, we get to peer in and see a dissatisfaction, right? The dissatisfaction of the psalmist, and, and with that dissatisfaction, there is a turning that happens, a turning to something else, that's what we're looking in on. They're, they're dissatisfied. There's all of these things. And out of that, there's a turning to something else. Our Christian you know, theological language has a special word for this moment. We call it repentance. And while that's a big, fancy theological word, at its core, repentance literally just means turning, right? Turning from one thing and to another. And in the Christian journey, the journey of discipleship, repentance means turning towards God. Right, and if it's if it's an actual action, right? If we're going to think about it as turning, it means you know we can't face multiple directions at the same time, right? So as we turn to God, it means we also are turning away from something else. As we say yes here, we're actually saying no to something else from other things, and that's what this psalm is about. So this is a very serious moment. It's a moment of repentance, and it's also a painful moment. Right? We, we read the psalm, we hear that pain and despair. And, and I, it, I think we can call it a painful moment because change, change in and of itself is a painful thing, right? Like if you've been around for a little while, you'll know this, people don't like change, right? We don't. Even the most adventurous people, you know what they don't like? Routine. And you know why? Because that would be a big change for them in their way of life, right? Because we don't like Change. Change is hard. This is a biological fact as well. I didn't know if you know this. Maybe you've heard of cognitive bias before. Yeah, maybe not. No, it's okay. If you haven't heard of it, you have experienced it. <laughs> okay? It's a, it's a self-protective measure. So our brains, my, my undergrad, I, you know, I went into school. You know, I didn't think I was going to be a pastor. I went and I started off. I was, I'm going to be a neuroscientist. I was studying neuroscience. And, uh, and so here, we're going to talk about the brain a little bit. Um, our brains, when we encounter an idea that does not fit into our current worldview, right? Whether it's in a video or in a conversation with somebody or a news article, when we get that, when that idea comes and it, you know, it, it, we encounter it, the natural biological response is our frontal lobe turns off. Did you know that? <laughs> that's called cognitive bias. It's not the whole brain, just the frontal lobe, just the part that's responsible for executive thought and reasoning, because why would we need that when we're encountering an idea different than what we think, right? That turns off, <laughs> and then we are left with our emotions and lower processes to somehow get, get, you know, get away from the idea that is challenging us in the way that we see the world. That's the default setting on our brains. People just naturally resist change in that way, and why? Because change is painful, right? But somehow, change still happens, doesn't it? Like, no matter how hard we try to resist it, time spins on and we are powerless to stop it. So what usually happens is we resist it. And we resist it until finally something breaks. The way that I've heard it put before is that people will resist change until the pain of changing is greater than the pain of not changing, right? And so we resist and we resist the pain of, you know, until that, that pain of staying the same with everything around us being different is greater than the pain of the change. And then finally, 
When it's more painful not to change than to change, then hopefully we would choose to make the necessary change. Um, I have an idea, you know, a story in my head. You know, Raven and I have these, these friends, and they bought a church building, a church that had closed down. And uh, they bought this building, and they were, they're uh, turning it into a, a home. They're going to live there, but they're also planting a church in it. It's really cool. And so, like, if you, you can, on Sundays, they open up the doors, and people just show up in their living room <laughs> to the church service that think it's, a, you know, an active church, which it is. It's really, really neat. And uh, they've got a big harvest table and all these things. But when they bought this building, this church had closed down. They were really stuck and rooted in their ways, and, and just, you know, the bureaucracy got the best of them, and eventually... Their unwillingness to change and adapt, they died, <laughs> right? And it's so funny because even after that had happened and they, they sold the building and they closed the church, our friends, they move into town and they start doing these renovations and people would give like, you know, drive by and give them dirty looks because they still resented the change that was happening even after. They're still unwilling to let the change come, right? That's our natural way of being. You know, and there's individual differences. Some people are more naturally graceful than others. I think about this church. I'm so grateful for the, the many leaders and pastors and, and lay leaders who have gone before me that have like set the stage for like, hey, change is a natural and a healthy part. And no, we're not gonna compromise on the, the deep things that we believe, but we're gonna learn and figure out and discover how do we be the church faithfully in this time, in this place, Right? And I'm so grateful for that. And so like we're a church that, that does that well. I think we've learned how to do that gracefully. But for everyone, change is hard. And this is the reason why, it's heard in that story of that other church, because change always involves death. Always in change, there is a death. There is a no that goes with the yes, right? In order to give a full yes to the new thing, we need to say some kind of no to the old. And that old thing passes away and the new comes. So our psalmist is caught up right in that moment of death, right? Right in that moment of change. And if we're following along, you know, in the Christian story, we kind of know the ending, right? So like the Christian story of discipleship, the Christian story is death always precedes resurrection. So we know that there isn't, we aren't without hope in this psalm, but but why, this is why when we read the psalm, there's such a tone of despair. Because we're looking in at the point when the pain of staying the same has finally bubbled up enough and has created enough discomfort that the heart is willing to consider something new. And there are a couple of examples in the psalm that we're going to look at each of them and think about perhaps how they might relate to our own Christian journeys as we're, you know, encountering these moments where repentance can come. So let's take a look at the circumstances that led to the psalmist to this moment of distress. And it is distress, right? Like verse one, the psalmist says, I call out to the Lord in my distress. I'm not putting that into the text. It's right there. So how did we get here? Well, the first thing is that they, that they cite as the reason for their distress. It's in verse two. It says, lying lips and deceitful tongues. This is interesting, right? Because the, the traditional Christian understanding, we talk about repenting, from our own sins, right? And we do that, and that's an important thing that we do. That, that's a part of our experience of conversion, of, of expressing our disconsent with our, our sinful ways and our inability to change and asking for Jesus' forgiveness. He would come and be with us. That is repentance. There's also contrition in there, and there's confession and hopefully the transformation of our hearts. But here, 
It's somebody else's lies that the psalmist is talking about. Why would the lies of someone else call me into repentance? Well, the psalmist is turning, right? Repentance is a turning. They're turning from those lies. And they're calling out to God for truth. Calling out for help to be saved from all of the lies of those around them. And, and this is one of the first steps that we take as Christians on the journey of discipleship. We need to learn to recognize God's voice among all of the other voices that come and present themselves to us, right? And there are all kinds of lies that we can easily fall into believing. One of my favorite theologians, his name is Andrew Root. He talks about one of the lies that he is most prone to believing and, uh, and that, that, that for him that he needs saving from, one of the lies that he carries with him. He calls it the lie of the extra $2,000. Um, or I think he actually says 2,000 bucks because he's American and he's cool like that, but I, I don't think I can get away with it. Uh, so as he looks back, he reflects on his life. Um, it just seems like however him and his family are doing financially, they believe that if we just had like an extra $2,000, then we would be good, right? You know, you're not, they're not living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have a, you know, massive amounts of debt, but whatever they have, it's just not quite enough, Right? Like, if only there was an extra $2,000 in the bank, house, bank account, then they would be happy. And of course, if their circumstance would change, and all of a sudden, you know, somebody got a raise and things shifted, and they have an extra 2000 they would still end up believing that if, it would be, you know, this is good, but if there was just like another, like if there was an extra, you know, like one extra $2,000 that was there, then, then we would be happy. Like, I know we just got it, but like, just like, there's just like that little bit more, right? Like the goalpost is perpetually moving. And here's the lie. The lie is I can be content. All that I need is that extra little bit. Isn't that a funny con contradictory? I can be content if I have that extra little bit. And we believe it because we're, we're so close right now, right? All I need, that extra little bit, and then I'm going to actually be able to be happy. A common motif in the work of Father Richard Rohr is the idea that if you are not content here, you're not going to be content over there. And as the, the AA handbook puts it, wherever I go, there I am, <laughs> right? A great self-aware example of this comes from an interview with Rockefeller. Maybe you've heard this before. So when he was the wealthiest man in the world, he was asked by an interviewer, so how much money is enough, right? He's the wealthiest man in the world. He kind of thought for a moment, and then he replied, a little bit more, <laughs> right? And we know, like we, we intellectually, I think we could all agree that a little bit more never actually seems to satisfy. But for some reason, we keep living as if we believe that that little bit more, just that tiny change, just that promotion, or if I just adjust my weekly schedule in this way or that way, then then I am finally going to be able to be content. Then I will finally feel better. Then I will finally have solved my problems. But it doesn't work, right? There's, there is something more that's at play here. The psalmist points out other examples of, of lies, of his age lies that he tends to believe, lies and circumstances in his own kind of time and place that lead to their own discontent and discomfort and despair, which eventually turn him to repentance. The places where they're, they're recognizing that. So verse 5 is an example of this. He says, Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Uh, now we can get lost in the language a little bit here, right? So let me just translate. Meshech 
in Kedar. Essentially, they are far-off, conflict-riddled places. These are not good and happy places to be. And maybe there would be good fertile soil and the potential to like, make something of themselves in that place. Or, or maybe they could, you know, by fighting with others, they could, you know, in conflict, they, there was a chance for them to find their way into success, a success that they just didn't believe was possible in the place where they were from. Or maybe it was that they had been running away from a past that just keeps catching on up with them. But for whatever reason, the psalmist has come to recognize these places are not my home. And no matter what I do, I can't change it to make it my home. And subsequently, they're realizing that these are actually not good and healthy places for me to live. And then whatever I try, I can't seem to make them into healthy and good places for me to live. And so finally, instead of continuing to try and shift and change that place where they're dwelling into something that feels more like their home, they've packed up their bag and started to move in a new direction. They're saying no to the hopes and dreams which were lies that they were clinging to in that place. Woe is me being here. They've recognized there isn't a hope being here. And that's where we're peeking in but we know what immediately follows the recognition of that, the no, is the turn, right? The turn to something else. And I think this flows right into the next point of discontent that the psalmist writes about. They write, too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they're for war, right? You hear again in this, that helplessness. I want, I want peace. I'm hoping for peace. But no matter what I do, I can't make it happen. And I mean, how many of us, after watching the news cycle and seeing arguments on social media feeds and division everywhere you look, how many of us just want peace, right? I think most of us. And, and yet, no matter how many times people say, can't we all just get along? Or maybe if we could just avoid this topic or this idea, then we'll have peace. You know, how many, how many times we do that and, 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 you know, maybe it works for a little while and then a new controversial topic arises and it sets us all reeling again and we turn against one another once again. It is so alluring to believe that if we all just got into a room and we talked about it reasonably that we'd be able to figure out a path forward but it doesn't seem to work, right? We, on our own, we cannot create peace. We can all say that we want peace, and we might not even mean the same thing when we define it. So we can all say we want peace. We're not even maybe talking about the same thing. And again, we come to a point where we say, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I cannot make this happen on my own. There's despair there, disillusionment, right? And again, the invitation of the song is not just to hopelessness, though, right? We're not just, all right, well, that's it. None of this works. The goal here is not that they would be led to say, I guess we can never have peace. The invitation is that upon actually realizing that we can't achieve peace on our own, that we, when we realize that the extra $2,000 is not going to save us, when we realize that no matter how hard we cannot, tr uh, how hard we try in our own strength, we can't change the world around us to make it into the place where we truly belong. When we recognize all of these things, when we experience the despair and finally go through the death of those hopes, 
that we have in, in our strength, in our systems, in our structures that are supposed to fix everything, when we finally see those things die, it's in that moment, the moment of the psalm. It's in that moment that we turn to repentance. In that moment that verse 1 of the song finds us, right? So the psalmist actually starts with it and then explains how they got there. We've been talking all about it. Now we're landing at the answer. Verse 1, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me, right? Save me, God, from the lies that I believe. The yes of calling out, save me, is the turning away from all of the things that we hoped in our control, in our power, could save us. All of the lies that said, I can do this on my own, that's a repentance. One of my favorite pictures ever of this comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dom Treader, in the Narnia series. Um, the book opens with this really funny line. It's, it says, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Shrub, and he almost deserved it, right? Because he's, he's kind of, uh, you know, not the nicest young man, and he's selfish and always poking fun and up on his high horse about this thing or that thing. And Eustace and his cousins, the Pevinson kids, they get transported through a picture into the world of Narnia, and he lives up to the kind of rotten, selfish way of being. And on a part of their journey, they find themselves on an island, shipwrecked. And Eustace sneaks off to avoid the work of helping to fix the ship, and uh, through a series of events, he gets turned into a dragon, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a magical mythical world. He's turned into a dragon, and the image here is finally that his outward appearance actually matches his heart, right? The selfish, hoarding, all-for-himself kind of nasty way that he was is now reflected in his outer appearance as well. But he needs help. He can't fix it on his own. He's got this thing stuck on his arm, and he's trying to figure it all out, and he has to go back to these people, back into this community and they see him, and they figure out that it's him, and they don't run away. They don't leave him. They turn to him in love, right? And something in his heart begins to shift. Something begins to unravel. Oh, maybe I don't need to fight to get the thing I need. Maybe, actually, there's a different way of going about interacting with the people around me. And the people support him and they're fixing their ship and it's about time that they're going to go and they're going, how are we going to bring Eustace? He's, he doesn't fit on our ship. What are we going to do? And they're problem solving. They're trying to figure out. And then one day they all go to bed and they wake up in the morning and Eustace comes walking out of the woods, a boy again. And, uh, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually read the section of the book here. I, just, I love it so much. Um, I, really, I really treasure this story. And Eustace tells them the story of what happened. So he says, I looked up and I saw the very last thing that I expected, a huge lion coming slowly towards me. Now, if you're not familiar with the Narnia stories, this big lion is a Christ figure. He's Aslan. He's the son of the emperor over the seas. It's a picture of Jesus, right? And so there's this huge lion coming towards him. And he says, one strange thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. And you might think that being a dragon, I could have easily knocked a lion out of my way. But it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid. 
If you can understand. Well, it came close up to me and looked straight into my eyes and I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke, Edmund says. So I don't know now that you mentioned it. I don't, I don't think that it did, but it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to do what it told me. And so I got up and I followed it. A turning, right? <laughs> the beginnings. And he says, and then it led me a long way into the mountains and there was a garden and trees and fruit and everything. And in the middle of it, there was a well. And the well was as clear as anything. And I thought if I got in there and I, and I just took a, I just bathed in it, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I had to undress first. I'm a dragon, right? What do you mean undress? So, so I started scratching myself and scales began coming off all over me. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and just as scaly as they had been before. He's trying in his own effort. And then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You'll have to let me undress you. And, and I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now the desperation of the moment, right? And so he said, so I laid flat down on my back and just let him do it. And the very first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. He said, change is painful, right? He said, the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off, right? The lies that we believed that we thought would save us and never have. Finally, finally they're going, right? He said, you know, if you've ever like picked a scab off of a sore place, it hurts like a billy-o, but it is such fun to see it coming away. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. He said, well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, I guess I cut out a bit of the story here, but he scratches at himself, tries to get them off three times. He can't do it. He can't do it. He can't do it in his own strength. He says, but just as I thought I'd done it on myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying in the grass, only it was ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than all the others had been. And there I was, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then he caught a hold of me, and I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment, and then after that it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I looked and saw why I was turned into a boy again. He couldn't do it on his own, right? He scratched and scratched and scratched and tried to shed his scales, but he couldn't. But then, like the psalmist in verse 1, he called out to the Lord in despair. And it was a painful process. That journey that Eustace went on, that was a journey of repentance, right? Here's how Eugene Peterson describes it. To go back into the language of our psalm again, he said, Repentance isn't an emotion. It's not feeling sorry for your sins. That's contrition, in case you're wondering. He said, it's a decision. 
It's deciding that you have been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It's deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. It's deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and about your neighbor and about your world. It's deciding that God in Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Repentance is a realization that God wants from you Sorry, that what God wants from you and what you want from God are not going to be achieved by doing the same old things, thinking the same old thoughts. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus Christ and become his pilgrim in the path of peace. He goes on later to call repentance the very first word in the Christian journey. But I think that it's a word that we have to keep coming back to over and over again in this journey. It is so easy to pick up burdens, pick them back up again, and to fall back into old patterns. And to, to, you know, we get into a good place and we start believing all over again the lies that we carried for so long. Maybe I can, I'm doing pretty good. Maybe I can do this on my own. Maybe that extra little bit will make me content and happy. So over and over again, for the pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem, it was at least three times a year, for me, much more often, <laughs> we need to be reminded that our ways don't get us to where we hope to go. And we need to be led anew into the practice of repentance. Let's pray. God, we call out to you and we ask today that you would save us from the lies that we believe. That you would set us free to come and dwell with you. Lord, remind us of your truths and help us to listen closely to and to recognize your voice among all of the different competing voices that we hear each week. Lord, let us be people who regularly return to this place of repentance, who regularly, whenever it is that we start to stray, we turn ourselves back to you. Help us to be people who give you the biggest yes that we can. And we say the no's that we need to say in order to do that. Be with us today, we pray, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.